What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to Experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Hello, how you doing? I'm Craig Parkinson. You are listening to the Two Shot Podcast. Sit yourself down, pop the kettle on. We're going to have a nice old chat. Who's in with this week? I'm going to tell you right now. How the devil are you? I hope you're all keeping well. It's September. Where has this year gone? Crikey. Um, but I hope, yeah, I do hope you're all keeping well. Um, and thanks for all the messages for the incredible episode from last week with uh, the wonderful Giles Torreira. Just the most loveliest fella. I'm so pleased he came on. And what I wanted to do, it's, it's not a companion piece, but it kind of is, because there's a connection with this week's guest. It's the fantastic playwright, uh, Roy Williams. I don't know why I was pausing there. I know his name. I've recorded it. Um, he is incredible. I've been a big fan of Roy's work for years. And it's a slightly different episode this week than normal. Of course, it's individual because it's a different guest. But uh, the way that it's structured, we don't tend to talk about uh, Roy's trajectory too much. We don't talk about growing up in Notting Hill because, and I'm pointing you to another podcast here, the Royal Court podcast with Simon Stevens. Uh, there's, he's had incredible writers on there. Do go and check it out. But the episode with Roy is really interesting because Simon does go right back to growing up uh, in a single-parent family with, I think, uh, three or four brothers and sisters who are older, um, how he, you know, he wasn't doing great at school and he got inspired by somebody else to start writing. So what I want you to do is go and check out that podcast and you'll hear about Roy's upbringing. Uh, and it's really interesting. But I didn't want to cover that again because it, it, someone's already done it. Um, instead, I was focusing more on the uh, the structure of his writing, a typical writing day. We focus a lot on uh, a great, great play that, that, as you'll hear in the episode, stuck with me still now when I was really thinking about it, uh, called Sucker Bunch with uh, Daniel Kalua at the Royal Court. If you didn't see Sucker Punch, you don't know what we're talking about, do go and read a review of Sucker Punch and look at some images. I think it'll really help with this episode, with what myself and Roy get into with the the whole design of, of the play. Um, and we talk about Death of England. Uh, we briefly talk about Fallout because of the connection with Lenny James and Daniel Ryan, who are past guests of the podcast. If you haven't heard those episodes, what are you doing? go back through the timeline, get on Daniel Ryan and the incredible two-parter that was uh, King Laddie James. Um, 
so yeah, that's uh, that's kind of all you need to know, I think. Um, and the connection, as you'll hear, is uh, Death of England, which started out with Rafe Spall at the National, moved on to past guest Michael Balligan. What? You haven't heard that episode? Come on. Go back, it's in the first year, Michael Balligan. What a belter. Um, so anyway, Giles Terrera... Here's the connection. Giles Terrera was originally cast of uh, in the part of Delroy, Death of England, Delroy, which is the second um, of, at the moment, is a trilogy. Um, but now he is playing that role again, but in the third part, which is going to be a two-hander that they've shot. It's um, Giles Terrera and Neil Maskell. And it's, yeah, they filmed it. They filmed it at the National, so it's it's kind of a hybrid. We, we did discuss it last week with Giles, and we briefly touch on it this week with Roy. It's it's either theatre or film. It's some sort of hybrid in between, and that's going to come on Sky soon when I've got a TX uh, an air date. I'll uh, I'll let you all know, and we can all watch it together. Yeah, great. So let's get down to it. This is the Two Shot Podcast with the fantastic. Roy Williams. Enjoy. I shall see you at the end. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Oh, brilliant! <laughs> See, that's so much better because if we can't, <laughs> if we can't do these things in person, which you know, yeah. I mean, we're slowly getting back to doing it. I mean, mm. I can't wait to be honest because let me just check I'm recording. Yes, I am all good because I've been. I spent so many years sitting down with a pot of tea, possibly a cake, mm. in front of somebody seeing the whites of people's eyes. And seeing, <laughs> you know, because the great thing, what I've learned about doing this, because I was so nervous about starting this years ago, mm. um, is you just read, you just read the body language. And, yeah. And whether, you know, sometimes we're, we're touching on quite sensitive subjects. And if you can tell if people don't want to go there, with what they do <laughs> without them telling you. Do you know what I mean? It's just so fucking helpful. Mm. Um, and I don't want to get into that uh, uh, sort of mindset of just doing it like this because it's, okay. it takes away that human aspect. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm all switched off, Roy. That's good. We'll throw that down there. Um, how are you? I'm very well, sir. Very well, thank you. You look yes. very well. Thank you, thank you. And yeah. no doubt, I'm sure, during this time you've been ferociously busy i have been yeah it's um it's been pretty i mean it generally has been busy for me you know i'm not showing off or anything but you know but um has been but particularly since um since the world just went to shit well i see um, that's the thing really, because really you know busy. as a as as an actor we're constantly relying on people like yourselves and you know producers to give things the green light and when and predominantly because i do a lot of filming more than more than theatre, mm. but everything involves collaboration, and Absolutely. we, we yes. can't we can't get together and collaborate and work together. But as a as a writer, as a playwright, 
you're your own boss, you know, you're... Well, yeah, I mean, it's... Um, to to, I mean, to a certain extent, obviously, with, regard, with regards to work, you can you can start, you can get it down, can't you? Yeah, because I had so many people as well saying to me, oh, um, the first lockdown must have been, you know, easy for you because, you know, you're at home, you're, you're writers, you traditionally work from home. And I said, yeah, to a degree, that is true, but um, I'm nothing without inspiration. And particularly that first lockdown... There was nothing to inspire me. It was just turn on the news, couldn't go out, couldn't see anybody. I mean, that's when it was really draconian. You can only mm. go out for an hour yeah, and then come back home. And then on the news, it was, it was COVID, COVID, COVID. So there was nothing. Turn, turn off the news, try and get inspired. And just, <laughs> yeah. there was a time when I just couldn't, I just couldn't. I had to turn the radio off. Mm. I had to turn the television off. I had to try and explain to my then nine-year-old kind of what was going on with my yeah. limited knowledge of what I was being drip fed. And it's like, mm-hmm. I really don't know at the moment. Yeah. And no, it's really hard. No. It's, what, what, well, it's it, really hard. And, um, but I kind of told myself, you know what, be patient because I think we as human beings, I mean, there's an old saying about storytelling with, you know, and in essence, that's exactly what I am a storyteller. Mm. We all, we all want to be told a story somehow in some form. And we want to be told a story. We want, yes, we want to tell a story and be told a story. I, I sometimes take that stage further. I sometimes feel we as human beings, we need to be a story. We need to be, in, we need to be active. We need to be doing something, you know, regardless of what it is. So I just kind of felt, okay, I'm going to wait. Something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. This is, this, this, it's not going to just be this. And in May, something did happen, something awful, awful, tragic and, uh, and had worldwide repercussions, and that was obviously the murder of uh, George Floyd. Mm-hmm. And um, and as a black man, yeah, I was shocked, sickened. But then also as a black man, I was cynical because I thought, okay, here we go again. People are going to use the usual protests and such, but it's yeah, it's going to die away. Yeah. And then then another poor bastard's going to it's going to happen to him again. Uh, not just in America, but here too, yeah. here as well. That, you know, because you know, let's let's not pretend it doesn't happen here. Um, but I, even the, but I was struck, really struck by the worldwide, you know, response to it. People marching, Black Lives Matter everywhere, yeah, all po- all points of the globe. That was, that took me, that blew me away. That that really astonished me. But I'm con- I'm convinced that was because of COVID. I think that by then people had had enough. They just said, we just got to go out. We just got to do something. Do you do you do you think if if we weren't in a pandemic and the awful tragedy? Uh, mm. of joy Ford that did happen do you not think it what would have happened the aftermath is that what you're saying i don't know i mean I, I, at first i thought yes yeah, because of covid and if it wasn't for that yeah he, he would have been just another black man who died but there was something struck me about um this generate this younger generation of ours because um it's hard for me to, to admit because like yeah you know, i'm in my 50s now and i kind of think okay we're the old um my generation we're the old farts now <laughs> and I haven't got children, but I, but my, bro- my brothers and sisters do, and my yeah. friends do, and uh, and you know, kids like I knew when they were babies, they're all like in their twenties now, and they're all going out, they're all working, they're all voting, and there's something different about them. They, um, it's all, I remember there was one sign during the the, the whole protest, and uh, actually my niece um, took part, and she was interviewed on Sky TV, and I was so proud of her. She was so, 14 years old and so articulate. Wow, go girl, well done. But there was a sign someone held up and they said is um you fucked with the last generation. And I just thought, oh, okay, it's a bit sentimental, but you know, but I just but I love that energy. I love that yeah. attitude. Just and that also, you fucked 
What you fucked with us last year? No and, more you after know, us. No and, more. And I, thought, I know yeah. what I know what I was doing at fourteen, and mm, it wasn't mm. being articulate and going no. on protest like that. So yeah, no, we need no. you. You should be proud of her. My yeah. God. And you know, sorry, yeah. I just gotta blow my nose. Go I'm, for it. Ah, oh, sorry. But I think that's right. You know, mm. they have. They have fought with the last generation, and they are mm. more articulate. They do. They've got something to scream they've about now. Between, they've got something between their teeth. Yeah, they really have. And you know, it's, it's them. I'll say Greek, you know, Greta Thunberg. I think she's she's of that generation. Mm. And wow, there's a young girl. How old is she now? Sixteen, seventeen? Yeah. Putting adults to shame. Oh, I mean, sometimes I know people go on about a younger generation and go, well, look at their role models. What what are their role models? Or sort of reality TV stars, that much, not much of a role model. But wait a minute, there is so many incredible role models out there, which yeah, is why yeah. they now have the voice. Absolutely. And Marcus Rashford as well. What I, astonishing of course, young man. Look oh. At, oh, my God, the stuff that he has done, you know. Mm. Yeah. Uh, especially where I am, you know, in the north now. I mean, they're yeah. just incredibly proud. There was an amazing sign that was put up uh, during lockdown one. And, it, and it, I think it, it went viral and it was all done here in Manchester. And I, I actually know the, the lads that did it. And it said, uh, Johnson nil, Rashford won. It was in, <laughs> and it was just up on the motorway and it just went I love off. That. I like that. I like that. And... The mu- I mean, again, I was touched by the mural that was defaced um, after, you know, the the, the Euros. And, um, mm. um, I mean, who didn't see that coming? I mean, I was watching it here at home with my nephew and my partner. And um, as soon as the final, you know, not the final whistle, but as soon as Saka missed that penalty, I just thought, yep, we all, we know what's going to come, what's coming. And sure enough, the tweets arrived. And I thought, yep, stop the clock. It's happened. And and Rashford's was mural. I think it was defaced. Yeah, it was. And then yeah. um, they, the guy who originally painted, he went back, did a touch up, touch up job, and then the community just came out and put. I mean, wow, that was I've, I haven't seen that before. I mean, that was it is. You have to be made of stone not to be touched by that. Oh yeah, I mean, you yeah. know, we always we go on about. I was talking. I was talking to Giles Terrera last week about it. Actually, hey, my about, man, um, you know. And not that this is a, a, a pandemic podcast whatsoever, no. but we have to talk about sort of change and things like this. And, you know, what you're touching mm. on there is a community spirit that is mm. alive and well. And mm. so many people, you know, that, maybe they didn't talk to each other, but now... Now they are. Now they are. Surely, look, we are all here yeah. and we are coming together for one yeah. purpose to do this. And, yeah, you're right. I mean, it was tr- it was so heartwarming mm. to see. It was, yeah, it, gave, it gives me hope, well, really that's does it. for us. It I really mean, did. If there's anything that we need, it's hope. And mm-hmm. it's little things like that. Yeah, that, absolutely. That prove that it is alive and well. Totally, totally. But Roy, let's just go back to writing and creating. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, you say, you know, yeah, it's all very well and good that people say to you, well, you're a writer, you, that's what you do. You, you are, you're alone for the majority of the time unless you're collaborating with somebody, mm. which I'm sure we can move on to later. But it's not necessarily easy because everything's shut. So <laughs> it's like you're saying you need the inspiration, but if there's no inspiration there, how can you get your stories down? Oh, very, with, with great difficulty, and I'm speaking for myself when I say that. Um, but I kind of rely... Inspiration for me comes from anywhere. It can, it can come from something, a conversation I overhear. And... 
it, it, it can be something that we're talking about that really enrages me mm. and also makes me laugh as well. It just gives me an emotion. Um, when I often go to the theatre, actually when I go to the cinema as well to see a film, all I want is three things, just three things. I want to be surprised. I want to learn something. And I want to be moved. Just give me any. Just give me those three things. And some of my best experiences in film and theatre sometimes have been when someone's just only achieved one of those things for me. Yeah. It's very rare I get all three. Very oh, absolutely. Rare. I mean, yeah. again, I think it was it was Giles I was talking to last week about theatre, and I, I was saying, you know, not nine times out of ten, that's a bit harsh, but let's say five times out of ten. I go and see a piece of theatre that I'm looking forward to seeing. And maybe I, I try not to delve too deep and know too much about what I'm going to see. And then I go, oh, well, I'm slightly disappointed because I can mm. see that they've stolen that from X. They've taken <laughs> that from there. I've seen Punch Drunk do that. I've seen Complicite do that about 10 years ago. <laughs> so please don't try and make it your own. But one, uh, one piece of theatre that always struck me and, and still sticks with me now. And I was thinking about it the other day when I knew that we were talking was Sucker Punch. Oh, okay. And, and never again, nor will I ever probably see the downstairs of the Raw Court just turn into a boxing <laughs> ring. Now, for those that didn't see it, I suggest you, re- you just look that up um, because that was a ferocious evening out. I mean, it was like being at a... It, sometimes it was like being at a ballet. Because yeah. it was so beautiful. Oh, it was It was more than I... Believe me, when I was writing it, I did not expect Miriam Butha, the designer, to turn the Royal Court inside out the way she did. Well, I was going to say... I wasn't expecting mean, that. Ha- that must have been quite a hard pitch to go, this is what we're going to do. I know, I know. I would love to have been the fly on the wall for that one. So, um, that, she she, so when she you, got her own way, and it was incredible. So when you wrote incredible. it, you, you didn't write it as... Uh, the, when I went to see it, the, with the design? no. no. No, it was just a simple. I just said boxing gym. In the, I think I, in the in the script it was just a boxing gym. I didn't. I didn't. Wasn't it? Nobody. Nobody I really was a boxing that. gym. It really was. It really was. Absolutely. And um, funny enough, um, a production happened a couple of years ago in LA, and they did it in a boxing gym. They you know, they did it the other way around. They they configured a boxing gym into a theatre. Wow. Um, I didn't get to see that one, and um, but but no, that was just incre- it was just incredible what um, the work that uh, Miriam and Sasha Wears, who directed the play, oh, did. absolutely, yeah, and the, and the guys as well, the actors were just phenomenal. Da- um, Anthony Welsh and um, some actor, oh, um, Dan, not quite sure Dan, what he's up to yeah, now. Dan, I mean, bless yeah. him, he, he did well. He did well. He did he? well. He did all right. I think well, he won yeah. an award a couple of months ago. Oscar, something maybe. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but like the training that those yeah. lads did, they—I mean—they looked like athletes. They were incredible. I mean, it's funny because I remember—I'm sure he won't mind me saying this—but when he came in for the audition, Daniel. Mm. Um, I mean, he's quite. I mean, I've always—I've known him since he was a kid. And I've, he's, I've always known him as sort of quite a podgy kid. Um, Phenomenal actor, however. I mean, I saw him do a play earlier at the court called Oxford Street, and he absolutely upstaged everybody. And he came in, he read, and he's a writer's dream. Because when you want, when you, I love actors who come in with the attitude, I'm here to solve your problem. It's me. I'm here. I've got the script. I've done my homework. Yeah. And, and, more, and more importantly, he just got the beats. 
of the he didn't just he didn't he didn't learn it because that drives me mad sometimes I have to say no offence when actors try to learn everything in audition because I, I, I want to say something you don't have to do that no I, I say that yeah. all the time to younger actors also just going mm. back to your point of oh I'm here to solve your problem I, you know you, I always say go in because they, they, they've got a hole to fill and it's you yeah, we don't want to be sitting there all day drinking stale coffee. Yeah, we want to. We want to be. Don't. You want to get on with it hit. and start building this jigsaw, and then you can get, take it into the rehearsal space. Hmm. But just going back to the auditioning, then it's so hard for younger actors nowadays because they're told you need to be off book. You need to. You need to no, learn these eight no. pages. And I always say to them, when you're going in for theatre, you need to be... I mean, you need to be malleable anyway. You need to be play around and, and you're going to get things thrown at you. Don't... Don't be comfortable. Exactly what you're saying. Do your homework. Know yeah. your character. But this is the start of building the character. Absolutely. Yeah, don't the director... Don't go in all... The, no, go the on. director... Sorry, go ahead. I was saying the director... <laughs> exactly. They want to see how you take direction. They yes. want, and they want to have fun with you. Um... But Daniel came in and he just, he did, he did everything right instinctively. He didn't go to drama school. He just did it instinctively. Mm. And he just got the rhythm of my words. And he was just phenomenal. And when he left, I mean, Sasha said, well, we've we'll, we'll, we got to cast him in the play. Interestingly enough, we were, at the time, we were seeing him for another part in the play. And, I, and she said, okay. And so we had him on shortlisted for that part. A real strong favourite. Mm. And then she called me that very night and she said, Roy, I've been thinking... I think we should offer Daniel the lead. And I said, you sure? But why? Because, yeah, uh, as much as I love Daniel, but I did panic a little because one, he didn't look like a boxer as well. And also as good as he was to carry the play, carry that play, because his character never leaves the stage. Yeah. Is, is a phenomenal ask. But she just said, I think he can do it. I really think he's got something. And she just said, because if we cast him in the other role, he's going to upstage the actor we end up getting playing the main part. So let's give it to him. And then they just got him on a sort of three month regime of training. I mean, they really, they were, they were above and beyond those guys. They yeah. really were. Um, it wasn't just a simple, oh, you come in for four week rehearsals. They, they were on it three months before they got into training with, um, boxer from the eighties called Errol Christie, who sad he's no longer with us. He right. died a couple of years ago. And he really, he really put them through it. Put Daniel, Anthony and Jason, Jason Mazza, really through it and um and daniel just slimmed down he lost about three stone yeah i mean they looked incredible i mean that's like oh. that's like movie training when oh, you're going, it's it going to be on camera it's, it's kind of unheard of to start a mm. three-month prep before you start a four or five week step into the rehearsal space for theater isn't it i know and to this day i couldn't believe it i mean it was a big ask of them but they they were up for it they really said no let's do it and um and I think that added to it. I think that added to the, the show's success, and just because um, there was a real there was a real bond between those guys. And then with the uh, with the other castmen who came later, um, Sarah Ridgeway, Nigel, and, and oh, Mr. Lindsay, yeah, Nigel of course, Lindsay. he was yeah. um, he was um, he was he was a don. He was um, he was he was our captain. Yeah, of he really he led from the front. He was oh, he's a delight delightful man to work with. But they looked authentic. They you know, did, it's, yeah. You know. We're telling a service in the play, but we're telling a story, but we're being truthful. And my God, mm. they looked as authentic as could possibly be. Wasn't oh, they did. Flab, flab of fat on them. And they looked no. like boxers. They looked like the throwing punches. And then, that's why I was referring back to when, when I... Th it was so graceful and elegant that it looked like a ballet at times, as oh. well as being... I was just fucking incredible. And that's why a piece of theatre like that 
And I'm not just saying this because we're, we're on, but it's a good idea to talk about it because you're my guest and it's important. But, Thank um, you. you know, yeah, it's, a, it's one of those pieces of theatre that has stayed with me and struck me at the time. Oh, thank you. It stayed with me as well. Mm. It's, um, it was a tough play to write. It's, um, when I look on, when I look back on the writing of Brian, that play, it gives me inspiration for when, whenever I'm, I suffer from writer's block now because I always remind myself, Roy, Roy, ask, remember, how long did it take you to write Sucker Punch? You went, yeah, good point, good point. Because there were times when it kept going back into the proverbial bottom drawer because I couldn't lick it, I couldn't get it, I couldn't make it to work. Is so it I started work- because you couldn't so got- get past a certain stage? or what- Couldn't get past a certain stage. The story just wasn't advancing enough for me. And also, I reached a, a stage, and this is a good lesson for me as a writer and also a good lesson for any potential writers who are listening. Um, it was a lesson for me. Um, one of my hobbies, um, Craig, is as well as um, writing, is photography. I love photography. I love taking pictures. And there's a wartime photographer called Robert Kappa. He right. died many years ago. And he was asked a question once. Robert, Mr. Kappa, um, you know, what's the difference between a bad picture and a good picture? And he said, a bad picture is when the person taking the picture is not close enough to the subject. You've got to get closer. And I kind of took that on board and kind of, you know, inferred it into my sort of into, in, into writing. The reason why I was going wrong with Sucker Punch was I wasn't close enough to the subject. I used to go to a youth club in West London because like West London is kind of where I grew up, mm. not, in, not in Hill, not in Dale. And it's a club called the Rugby Club. And, um, and they had a boxing club there. And me and my mates used to watch some of our mates fight, you know, and do amateur boxing. And um, actually I put this in the play. I remember I was like larking about in the gym with someone, one of the guys and he hit me and then I hit him back and it's quite a sort of swift uppercut. And then the guy, the, the, the manager, the trainer who ran the gym saw me and said, all right, right, get these gloves on and see what else you can do. And I got into the ring and he's get uh, and I fight with another kid who battered the life out of me. Yeah. And I thought, that's, that's it. That's it. <laughs> I'll watch it from the armchair from now on. Thank you very much. So I was using all of those experiences to write the, pl- to write the play and it was only getting me so far. And then I realised, what am I doing? I'm writing a play about boxers in the 80s and I'm not spit, I haven't met any. So I called the Royal Court, told them, you know, this is my problem. And they knew someone who knew someone who knew someone who knew John Conte, hmm. who I remember, I used to watch him fight when I, when I was a kid. And he came into the court, we had lunch and we spoke for about three hours. And um, he just told me lots of stuff I didn't already, you know, probably already knew, but it was just interesting just hearing it from him who lived it. Yeah. His, yeah, his career as a boxer, the racism he endured as well. And just more, more importantly, it was the little things like, you know, how he puts on a, puts on a glove, what's his training regime workout and um, the banter between other guys in the gym and so on and so on. And he just fed me. He just fed me loads of stuff and I went away and, and that really kind of really gave me a real good tailwind to really, um, to, you know, to hit the next draft and, and deliver something that I, I was happy with that the Royal Court could see. And, that, and thankfully that was the play they, that was the draft. I mean, they decided, yeah, we're going to go with this. So tell me about the commissioning process then, because obviously the Royal Court were on board whilst you were writing. So what did you have to give was, them to yeah. inspire you and put the faith in you that you're going to deliver? Well, I, I need to go back a little bit because, um, I mean, the Royal Court were one of the theatres I established a relationship with. And this was the time, and yeah, it doesn't exist as much now, and I wish it did, is when um, theatres, they, they they didn't just invest in a playwright, they just established a relationship with you. Yeah, if they, if they saw something of you written and they like you, you know, they'll invite you in and, and that's what the Royal Court did. I mean, I remember, 
yeah, I got a phone because I sent them my play, um, play that I wrote when I was at college. And they called me in. I met Graham Wybrow just for a general chat. I met Stephen Daudry, who was artistic director at the time. Mm. And I was put on the, the writers group. And then, in, and in, and more importantly, I was, I was given free tickets to see plays. They have writers' nights for every time a play opens. Yeah. So, uh, so a relationship was built. And they didn't just, you know, Im- immediately commission me. They eventually did um, to write a play, which they turned down, and they were right to because it was crap. <laughs> <laughs> but then I wrote two up. Then I wrote, but then I kind of, I got, I got my mojo back by writing and writing another one, which they did, and they did. But what was great about it, in between all the, the three plays I wrote, two plays actually I wrote from before, by then Ian Rickson had taken over the courts. Mm. And even before my first play for the court, which was Lift Off, had opened. Already he said, okay, Roy, let's get a date in the diary. Let's talk about what you're going to write for us next. It was just assumed you're going to write another play. They didn't care how well or badly that play was going to do. They just, they just said, no, you know, you're going to write another piece. And the same thing happens after um, Clubland. But that's, and, that's uh, them investing in, investing in you as a writer. They're investing in the writer, yeah. not investing in what's coming up or what's going to be a hit. They're investing in you. Which, exactly. which, which I mean... I know there's other theatres that do this, but it's quite specific for the Royal Cup because it it it, it started out as the writers' theatre. Exactly, you know, I couldn't have asked for a better home to no. be kind of um, to be you know, to be you know, to more or less be brought up. So by the time I'm actually after it was after my second upstairs play, and again Ian Rickson took me downstairs uh, into the into the downstairs space, and we had our meeting there. And then that's when he said, "Is okay, I think you're ready to write a play for the downstairs space. And I got so excited. That just, that's one of the happiest days of my life. Because um, as a playwright, by then, I knew what that meant when you have a play downstairs is your name up in lights yeah. in Sloan Square. I that's, mean, it's, oh. it must be every writer's dream. I mean, you just, oh. you, I mean, everybody knows that very famous shot of look back in anger outside exactly. Sloan Square. And then you see, oh, our country's good, Timberlake, Wurt and Bacon. You go, oh my oh, God, that could be me. It's super exciting. It's so simple, oh. but so classic. It's such, oh, such it's an iconic just, sign outside. Yeah, because the, yeah, the writer comes first. That's, mm. yeah, that, uh, and, and that was amazing. And he finished the meeting and he said, look, stay here for as long as you like. Just soak it up, soak it all in. So yeah, and that's what I did. I soaked it up. And I had a really good thought, think about um, pl- um, what I wanted to write about. And um, Sucker, that's when Sucker Punch was conceived in my mind, really. And, but like I said, it, yeah, it took me that long until I really, until I realised I need to speak to some boxers. Yeah. <laughs> but is it, is it the way with, with that? Did you feel, or, or is it the way, that by having your production upstairs, it's a trial to, to come downstairs? Because, I mean, for those that have been to the Royal Court, they, these are two very, very different spaces. Yes. So what you would write for upstairs wouldn't necessarily translate for downstairs and, and obviously vice versa. But is that Absolutely. the way that it's kind of a trial to... I don't know if I use the word trial, but there's, but um, I think I know what you mean. But, yeah, absolutely. It, it just, um, you, without sort of being formally taught, you are, you do learn. You do learn about f- space mm. and stuff. And, and, I, and I've very much learned a lot from that. So I'm still learning to this day. Um, but, yeah, it's the very different spaces. And But neither one of them, I would say, is limited. I think it, it, it just, I think you allow, I think you should, Playwrights should allow whatever space you're writing for to inform the work you want to do. And 
you know, try very hard not to see it as being limited because um, it doesn't have to be. No. I've seen some incredible pieces upstairs. So actually, I've seen some better pieces with all due respect to the court than me I have downstairs. Me too. And I've yeah. seen that upstairs been transformed. And I remember walking up one time going, oh, I don't even feel like I've walked upstairs. I've walked something yeah. completely different. I went sort of exactly. all down to fucking the incredible designers and crew that, mm. that work there. Oh, the stunning. Um, do you feel um, as much part of the casting process? Because I know that the writers are very much involved, certainly with the Royal Court. But if you mm. moved to the National, or, or let's say, for instance... Is it that same feeling that you have control as you do at the Royal Court, or certainly have a voice? I um, certainly have a voice. Mm. Um, I, I think I've, I take pride in the fact that I've sat in on pretty much most, if, if most if not all auditions that have been for my plays over the years. Um, but I'm, I like to think of myself. I'm respectful of the director, um, and I always say to him, "It's your call. It's your final call." Um, I use it for me, actually, when I sit in auditions, because it's an opportunity for, for me to hear the play in advance. Yeah. And, and also what's fun about it is you see how different actors approach it. That always get, I always find that really a good lesson, just to see, okay, well, you know, do, they, will they, do they all trip up on that line? If so, okay, there's a problem with that line. I need to do something about it. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I really, I'm, 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 I'm like... Um, yeah, I'm like that. Even when I go and see my plays, you'll find me watching the audience more than watching the play because I always feel I learn a lot from them. Oh, absolutely. Just in terms of how they move, yeah, how they move, and are they engaged in that bit? And I take, I you know, I try to take as much as that on board as possible. But 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 auditions, yeah. I mean, I, I enjoy it. But you know, I used to be an actor myself, so I, I'm kind of aware of, yeah, yeah, the, the rules. Of, you know, yeah, I, mean, I won't be as. I try not to make it sound as formal as that, but you know that's that's the close, that's the best word I can I can I can say. But yeah, there there is you know it's a director's call, so it's their space, so I let them do all the talking, and yeah, I mean, and most directors value my opinion. They just say, "What do you think of that person? That person?" And sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes when the actor comes in, no disrespect to them, you just know within ten seconds they're not right. And I tell this that I've been to drama schools like yourself, and I've, I've told younger writers, say younger actors, I should say, is um, you'll be amazed the reasons why you don't get a job, and it's got fuck all to do with how good you are. Yeah, it's other crazy logic, logistical reasons why you don't get a job. So you know, it's all about don't take it personally, for goodness' sake. Yeah, how how are you with rejection? Because you spoke before about when the the court knocked back knocked back one of mm. your plays, and by your own admission, you did say it was crap. So are you? Yeah. Are you <laughs> how, how are you with rejection? Because if you're put in, I don't know, let's. Uh, six months into to a first draft or however long it may be. I mm. don't know. I, I, obviously, I'm not a playwright. But you've worked hard. You've researched. You've done a lot of homework. You've got it down. It's got to a point where you're passing it over for someone to read. And then they go, no. <laughs> it's it's hard. It's still hard to hear. And um, make no mistake, it still happens, even no matter what stage you're at. I mean, I remember, I won't give, I won't give away the playwright's name, but I had lunch with them a year ago during, mm. I think, you know, during the f- second or first lockdown, and um, and they apologised for not coming to see my play at the national. And I said, "Why?" He said, "Well, they turned my play down." And I need to spat my coffee out. I said, "What? You? They turned you down?" And he goes, "Yeah." And he was still very sore and bitter about wow. it. Wow. Um, but I understood that. I've 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 felt that way when I've had plays turned down by um, theatres as well. Um, 
it, it, it is difficult. I remember, I think I handled it a lot better than I did when um, the court turned my first play down. Because um, cause I think at that time, I came off the back of, um, I think it, was, it wasn't long after Daldry started. And he managed to find this generation of young of new young playwrights. A lot of them, you know, a big, you know, kind of established playwrights now. Myself, Jonathan Harvey, Mark Ravenhill, uh, oh, oh, so many others. Rebecca Pitchard, Judy Upton, oh, there, there so many. David Eldridge came about. Joe Pennell came on came on in that era. A lot Simon Stevens. Yeah, that generation. He found he, he found a lot of those names, and my name kind of sort of came off the back of it. So I felt quite chuffed. I felt quite sweet, and you know, my name is listed on, along those other writers. S- to the point, I wasn't expecting a rejection. I wasn't quite prepared for it. As I said, there were rights turned down. It wasn't a very good. It wasn't a very good first draft. And I remember because at the time of the Royal Court were um, they were in the West End while Sloan Scale was being rebuilt. Right. Yeah, I remember that. And um, and I met the I met literally Magic Graham in when they were based at the Ambassadors, and I took a long walk to Hyde Park, sat on a bench, cried my eyes out. Absolutely, it was desperate. De- you know, I was you know, I was oh, it was it was. I just let it all out. I was in floods of tears, and then um, you know, I went to bed, woke up the next day, and just said, okay, well, it can't get any worse than that. And it hasn't, even spite of I've had you know rejections and and and, and so on. But I mean, where I've come round to thinking of it at the moment, uh, you know, not at the moment, but just you know, this is this is how I deal with it, and this is what I often tell younger writers. Well, I'm sorry to say this; this may sound blunt, but it's their right not to like it. Of course. Sorry, it's their right not to get it. More importantly, it's their right not to get it. Yeah, yeah, they won't see that what you've written is the next. I don't know, all my sons, or <laughs> yeah. you know, or where, or wherever. Yeah, they yeah, they don't get it. They won't get it. And, and it's their you, right to. It's their right to be stupid. If you have to sit down yeah. and explain it to them, yeah. then uh, yeah. well, then maybe you haven't done your job. It's like sitting down and explaining mm. a joke to somebody and <laughs> yes. w- wanting them to find it funny. But if I see, then it, the, it, maybe it's the and joke or it's the teller I, of the joke. That's an excellent way of putting it. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's it, it's it's our right. It's people's right not to get a joke. Just don't get. They just don't get it. And that's the way you got to accept it, and then you move on. But, and, but also, uh, as you say, you sat on that bench and you let it all out, but it's important mm. to acknowledge the rejection. You yes. Not necessarily, I say to younger actors all the time, as you say to younger writers, there's going to be a lot, there's going to be more rejection than, mm. you know, the door's going to be open, come in. Um, yes. But it is important to sit with it and don't think you're just going to climb back on the horse straight away. Give yourself a bit of time. It's important to have a bit of Give grieving time. Break. You've worked really Give fucking s- hard. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, that, and I, that's what I say to them. That's what I say to myself. I just say, yeah, no, you busted your ass writing this piece. Yeah, they don't They don't get it. You take a deep breath and you take it somewhere else. And I've lost count. And it's happened to me and so many other writers where you take a play to another theatre and they get it and they, they, and they put it on. Yeah. I, again... There's one play, again, I won't get into specifics. I'll tell you about this another time when we meet up. I'll tell you in private over a bottle of wine or something. <laughs> but there's one theatre who, I mean, I remember, I remember they discussed this certain play and absolutely dissed it, completely dissed it. Thought it was utter crap by this writer who they felt should have known better. Hmm. I don't, I don't, I've never met this other writer, but then I hear, but then, well, I didn't hear, but he did. He took it to another theatre and it was a massive success. Big hit. 
you can't please everybody. You can't please everybody. And no. everybody has different taste, and as mm. well they should, because otherwise what a boring world and a boring artistic world we would Absolutely. live in if all theatre was the same and all film was the same and all storytelling was, yeah. was to come to the same Just, conclusion. Yeah. Just believe in yourself, believe in your work and um, listen to yourself and be honest because... Um, and that's a, that's not an easy thing to do, but I think you have to. Um, I really had to admit to myself, okay, that play they rejected wasn't any good. And but 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 conversely, the other plays, I think I've had sort of two rejections. And um, yeah, those plays I do believe in. I did believe in. I said, okay, fine, they didn't get it, but I do believe in this play. I honestly do. Yeah, it still needs more work, but I still believe in it. And you take it and you take it there. And then, but interesting. I mean, I mean. This is what this is what's fun and um, so so daft about this industry as well because um, again I won't mention the play but I've I, I know I have written one play there's one there's one play in my back catalogue that should never have got put on it wasn't ready it wasn't ready and we we, we kind of got away I kind of got away with it um, did you feel that should, at the time or is this with, I did, with hindsight I did right. I did feel that at the time it wasn't ready it wasn't ready and I should and I should have said said, said, said to them can I have another year? And um, so, but yeah, but there's nothing I can do about that now, but there, but there's plenty I can do like with future work and really just remember that and just sort of say, you know, you know, don't rush myself. And um, what was about rushing? It was just, um, don't be arrogant, Roy. Cause I think a slight arrogance of my part came in. I think, yeah, I can do this. I can sort this. And then, but you know, the, the, the inner, inner voice was saying, mm, yes, I know you can, but you know, give yourself time. You're not giving yourself time here. Yeah. I mean, and I, I should listen to that inner, inner voice. Confidence is key and confidence is important. And I always think mm. if it tips into arrogance, then you need to have a sit down and have yeah. a little word with yourself. Yeah, you know, exactly. in, 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 in every sort of, very much just, so, just very much not so. even in, in this yeah. business, I just think in life full yeah. stop. Yeah. You know? But I think I've, I mean, I mean, that play I'm talking about, I mean, that was quite a while ago, but um, I still remember, I still remember, yeah, that feeling. Do you think that uh, it, time is key to when a play is put on or when a play is written? Because I'm trying to think, like, Fallout happened at, at, at mm. the opportune time and obviously when it translated to telly. Yeah. But then again, Sadly, if you put Fallout on now, it would would it be as relevant? I don't know. I think I think it would be because sadly, it's still happening. Well, that's what I mean. Yeah, it's still it's still going on. Yeah, I, I like to think, I, I, but I didn't think about any of those things at the time. And I mean, an overall point I think what, what, about what you're saying is, um, someone once said this to me once years ago when I was at college. You know, a first a new play isn't finished until the last night. So it's still it's it's still evolving. It's still growing to be played. It's Abs- not a complete play until the very last night. Absolutely. Just still finding things. Um, I find, and um, and that was certainly the case with um, with Fallout. I mean, that went through so many drafts, um, in spite of the subject matter. Mm. Um, and then, and that was a, that was an interesting kind of leap from doing it from a play to a, to a, to a TV film. That took a while, um, mostly because. Um, Oh, it, it went through so many. I mean, some some one film company had the rights to it, and I did a script for them. It didn't work out, and before you know it, two years of development and, and writing it for you know um, a huge amount of time has passed, and um, and then it came to the point when another production company expressed an interest, and I went with them, and they're the ones who ended up producing it, and um, but that was interesting. Just um, 
you know, because I remember writing it. So I remember how I had um, the text of the play here and the kind of blank page here. And 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 it was a real interesting lesson in terms of um, what the camera can do for you in terms of telling the story. Like, mm. yeah, I didn't need that big speech by that Shanice has on page 37. A zoom in on her eyes tells me, tells all, all, I need, all I needed to know. And I got a lot of help with that, with um, the producers and script editors in that. And that, that was fun to do. That was, and it was even more fun because Ian Rickson, as well as doing the, the stage version, he did the film version. Yeah. And he did a, and yeah, him, Ian being Ian, he, he did a marvellous job. Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, you've got Lenny there as well. Oh, don't get me started <laughs> on him. <laughs> I love that man. Was really it, love that wh- man. When you're talking about um, that, that, for instance, then, that we, well, we don't need that speech and we can just zoom in as she tells mm. the story. Was it easy for you as the writer to lose something that maybe you really loved? <gasps> oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, there was that old... Um, I mean, Mamet coined the phrase, is, you know, kill your babies. Which I always hate. They're always it's just kind of like, oh, piss off. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good line. You know, work my ass off to kind of think of that line. You're just telling me to put a red line for it. No, on your bike. Yeah. Um, but there, there is some logic in, 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 in terms of what he's saying, really. And it, 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 it was that really. It's just like, you know, what can the, what can the, the camera do for you? And, um, Actually, it's was, it was quite therapeutic, actually, putting a red cross through <laughs> the dialogue and, and scenes that, um, we, that, that were in the play that we couldn't transpose. I remember mm. the ending gave us a headache, trying to, how, how do we come out of this? How do we come out? Because, you know, it, it seems easy, but to, the ending we had for the play didn't quite, wasn't quite, didn't quite transpose over to... We filmed it as, it, as, as, as the play did. Oh, really? Yeah. I think that was it. I think then, I think that's when the genius of Ian came in because I think um, I couldn't think of it. And he said, look, let's just film it. Let's see what we got in the edit. And hopefully a bit of inspiration will come to us in terms of where, where, where we ended it. Yeah. And it was quite, it was just a simple thing. It was just a, the main character. Shanice just, um, she's made peace. She's at peace with herself. She's made a confession, which actually wasn't in the play. Um, we put, the, you know, I wrote that and she, yeah, she's, goes to the boy's parents and asks for forgiveness and the pet, the, the, and the mother beautifully played by Noma Dumaswenny. Oh my Again, God. Another, another actor who's kind of disappeared. What's she up to these days? I wish she would come back and do something and grace our screens oh, and our I, stages I, once I'm, more. My God, whatever yeah. happened. I mean, what all these such amazing, beautiful people that you work with. I, I emailed her once and just said to her, okay, do I have to write a play for you to, to get you back? And she laughed and I thought, yes. she, said, she said, do it, Roy, do it. I said, I'm going to hold you to Yes. I'm, and I am. I'm going to write a play for them. I'm going to hold it to her. I'm going to write it. I'm going to say, right, get your ass back here. I am not editing that out, Roy Williams. No, Do we don't, have this don't you dare. now. I, can, I will be there for opening night. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and, um, go on. Sorry, go on. No, please. Um, the end of Fallout. And- yeah, the end. And um, it was just a simple, yeah, she goes and see Noma, asks for forgiveness, and Noma gives it to her. And then we see her on the bus. And, and again... No, no dialogue. It's just her sitting there. You just kind of think uh, a weight's been lifted. Not completely, but a weight's been lifted. She's matured. And then we, and we see her go fade out on the bus. And I thought, that's it. That was perfect. It's so interesting because there's so much strength in silence mm. on screen. And you can just sit with it for as, as being as brave as you can as a filmmaker and let the audience... Do you know what it reminded me of? Um, I think I told Ian at the time. I hope I did. Is um, it's it's the most it's the most brilliant ending to any film was Long Good Friday. 
Oh my when, God, uh, yes. When Bob Hoskins at the back of the car and um, Pierce Brosnan's pointing a gun at him and he goes through every single human emotion because he knows this is it. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm on my way to my death. And I just thought, oh, that was genius. And um, yeah, it's, it's one of those moments where I kind of think, oh, I, I, who came out with that first? Was that Bob Hoskins or was that the writer? I'm, I'm on the side of the writer. I would just say, I know it was a writer. It was a writer, but it probably wasn't. It probably was like the actor or the director kind of thought that up. But, um, but then, yeah, it wouldn't have happened unless, you know, Barry Keith's genius words weren't there for um, Bob Hoskins to speak. Absolutely. And let's just, mm. let, let's put it down that it was a collaboration between all three yes. of them. I, I, I yeah, I, yeah I'll go with that. That's I'm what I would like that. to think. Um, um, Roy, I want to talk about you as a writer and like mm-hmm. would you have a typical writing day i know everybody has different things are you structured with you, you know are you going to get up at six you work six till 12 and have a break how does that work or does it depend on piece to piece it really isn't a piece to piece what's common is i do get up very early um i can get up at six and um yeah i can i can work to about nine i live opposite a school Right, so okay. my, I, I kind of set my day around as kids. Right. When the school <laughs> bell go, goes, you clock out. That's it. I go downstairs for another cup of coffee. Yeah. Yeah, and, um, that, that's about as close as I get. I mean, I faff around as well early in the morning. I might, I might catch up on um, on a box set or something I've missed on iPlayer. I mean, I'm, I might catch that for watch that for an hour. Um, or sometimes I, I, I can waste a good hour on YouTube. Got, <laughs> I'm hey, sorry. Who, who can't? Yeah. Um, just, just nonsense, absolutely. You know, when it's cats falling out of trees or just anything, <laughs> um, I kind of you know, waste my time. And um, Oh, Roy, have you watched The White Lotus yet? Oh, yeah, we, we devoured it. We watched it all. I think we watched them all in one night. What in yeah. one night, you masochist! What an incredible was, piece of telly. Oh god, god, it was just. I thought, and it was like it was just. I was here. I was hearing about it. We were hearing about it, and then we just watched it. We just walked. Within ten minutes, we were in. Yeah, it's one of the best openings. I just thought that's it. I'm. Ne- I'm in. I'm in. Yeah, quite and, extraordinary. Um, it made me squirm. Yes, because uh, I've I've had I've encountered people like that before. And, oh, um, the I'm conversations sure you have. <laughs> was oh my god, <laughs> and just thought this is incredible. And the acting was superb. I mean, I, oh, I wish I could remember his name because I, I always like to big up actors who do amazing performances. But the guy who plays the, the manager, hotel manager, I can't remember his name either. I mean, what a star! It was. You know, they talk about. Oh well, this this was this was the performance that uh, sort of uh, mm. opened the doors to the world for a certain person. I think this is it for him. And forgive me, I, I will. What I'll do is I will do some research and I'll put his name in the uh, the intro yes. or the outro so we know and we can sort of big up who we're talking about. Because yeah, and also Jennifer Coolidge. Being oh my god, she was fantastic. Just fantastic. heartbreaking and monstrous and <laughs> hilarious. Everything. But she it's was everything. everything. Uh, just so I know we've gone wildly off topic, no, everybody, no, but everybody right. listening, I don't want to give any spoilers away, and neither does Roy, but do go and watch The White Lotus where you can, and uh, it'll uh, hopefully it might inspire you to. Here, here. Well, just be a better person, probably. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, just jumping forward now to the present, mm. um, certainly with Death of England, was it conceived 
as a trilogy, because obviously I know there is there's going to be there's three separate chunks. I'm yeah. allowed to say that there's three at the moment. Yeah, you can say it. Yeah. Okay. Only because yeah. I know because yeah. I've just got massive inside information because I know everybody. So. Oh yeah, because I'm a certain Mr. Maskell. Yeah, <laughs> so, absolutely. Yeah. And of course, if you know Giles and Clint, so of course. Um, no, actually, um, I think that came about because um, we did the original um, ten minute film for for the. Because we were commissioned, if I, if, if I may, um, I was commissioned along with other writers to write short films for The Guardian, sort of co-production between them and the, and the Royal Court. Mm. And we were commissioned to write films that inspire, that, that were inspired from the pages, the supplements that we get in the Saturday Guardian, i.e. music, sports, fashion, um, politics. And I went with sports. And, um, and then the idea I came up with was a, fo- was a football fan at a funeral of his father. So And then became... The, the the football the national, the beautiful game was a really good metaphor for where I felt where where we were at that time as a country yeah and uh, that, I think it was 2014 and that was the first time the word Brexit started being uttered right and um, so so that and Clint came on board to direct that short film we you know I've known I've known Clint for years uh, he's you know as an actor and as a director and uh, we you know and I I love working with him. And he just said, you know what, there's more here. We can do more here. So jump forward a couple of years later, we were at the National Theatre Studio and we got a bunch of actors in. And um, and Clint, because um, I know, because he's worked with Mike Lee, he, he likes that kind of uh, the way Mike Lee finds characters. So we did a lot of, we did a lot of that, just in terms of to build a story up, you know, to build, to make, um, the funeral was still going to be centrepiece, but then we wanted the other characters, you know, his relationship with his dad, his mm. sisters, his best friend Delroy, and so on. We just got these great actors, and we just um, <clears throat> and we filmed them, and we had so much to go away to write a first draft. And I think I panicked him a little because I said to him, "It's too much here. It's 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 it was. I think it's like the most biggest play I've ever I think I've ever written and co-written. And I just said, it's you know, it's um, it's 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 too fat. It's just too big, mate. But I've got an idea. Can we write it as a one-person play? So we don't lose anything, but tell it all through the character of Michael. So I said to him, look, let me go away. Let me write a draft and show you. So I did that and he loved it. And then, and then he, and he took over and he wrote a draft. And um, it's funny between us, because we never formally said, let's write this play together. We just, um, it just, it just seemed right from the very beginning that we do it. And it was um, just organic like that. It, it just, felt organic, right. felt organic. Cause um, I mean, Clint and I, he, I mean, he grew up in the East end. I grew up in West London and, um, both our kind of well, how we grew up and our knowledge of the white working class, and because you know most of, you know most of my mates when I grew up as a kid in the area I lived in were white and working class and Irish as well, so I grew up with a with a level of understanding and, and as did he. So it just felt two as were better than one, and um and and I'm glad we did. I mean the pl- I mean the play is was fantastic because because we both did it together. I I really believe that. Um, yeah, so like I said, so I went away. He then he did another draft, and then we pitched it to the to, to national. They loved it, and then Rafe thankfully came on board, and um, and that was also the first time when it felt almost at times, um, even though our names are on it, mine and Clint, but Rafe had a had a hand in it as well, and it was right to do it that way because it's just him on stage. I mean, what he did on that on stage every night, I just every time I sat, I watched in wonder of him. Just like how the hell can you keep that level? Yeah, 
up on your own on the stage. My God, I mean, he was just, he was a soldier. Well, sadly, sadly, I didn't get to see it, but mm. um, I had good friends that did see it and said it was, they've never seen anything like it oh, before. It so it was important. It was, I felt it was important for my part. We should give up a little bit of ownership to the place to Rafe because he's, he's carrying it on his own. So in rehearsal, so, so, you know, I think we gave him a lot more um, say in stuff. But also that's but it. That's what period. we were talking about at the beginning. Mm. It's this like mm. true collaboration. This is a true yeah. collaboration trifecta between three artists there. Absolutely. Yourself, Clint Absolutely. and Rafe. That's, that's, and it worked. Yeah. It served, it served the piece. That's why I feel it did. We all served the piece. So that was a really great way of working. And, um, and it's funny because I've often been asked by, you know, other people, particularly writers, oh, you know, is it good working with someone else to write a play? And I just said, it's, it's got to feel organic first. Yeah. You've got to be of one mind almost on, on, on the play. You know, it's not, it's not just about you just coming together. Um, and so, yeah, and certainly in this scenario, one voice, one you voice, know, yeah. his, his voice, but yeah, I mean, if it's, mm. I always think if you have to try and push or it's not working, then yeah, maybe it's not exactly. meant to be. Exactly. And, and the fact that, you know, Clint co-wrote it and directed it. I mean, he is an extraordinary, amazing director, and I'm so glad he's getting his due now. Yeah. He, and, it, and it's bloody well-deserved because he's top, top. No, me too. Yeah, he's an extraordinary mm. talent and a, a fantastic bloke to boot. Mm. Oh, top man. Sort of, which, which, certainly for collaboration, I always tell people, just don't be a dick. Don't exactly. Be, don't be a dick. <laughs> He's uh, he's one of those. Um, I mean, I've, I've been I've been I've been blessed working with directors, but he's definitely got that. He's never said it out loud, but he's definitely got that kind of aura. Like I don't I, I don't have time for dickheads in the rehearsal room. No, if you're a dickhead on your way, get out. And he's he's got a very good dickhead from you know, Amata on his head. Like yeah. absolutely, I was um, working earlier this year on. A, I'm not really allowed to say, but something that was very it's very well mm. loved. To, um, BBC show, a lot of okay. respect to it. And I was sat down with the producer and me and my other, this other actor I was working with, and we were just talking about the, the the origins and the genesis of the show. And he went, the one thing that we just always have and we pride ourselves on is we just don't cast dickheads <laughs> <laughs> because we've got no time for it. And, no we went, time. and it's no actually, time. we pride ourselves, this is a really nice place to come and work and everybody has a laugh, but we always get the job done. And we don't employ dickheads. And it's like, well, if we're going to collaborate, Simple. which Simple. everybody wants to do, everybody wants a collaboration, mm. you need to collaborate with people that are sound. So first yeah. and foremost, you know, it's like Kathy Burke said, turn up on time, know your lines. And she said, don't be a cunt. And she's Sorry. right, you know? <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um, but, I mean, it's funny, because as a writer, I don't, um, from a distance, from a distance, um, I think I've been quite blessed. I haven't, I haven't worked with dickheads. No. However, but I don't, I don't work. I'm not as close as with actors as, um, as I am, as, 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 um, the directors I worked with are. And, and more often than not, I've heard different stories about certain actors I worked with and they just say, well, he was a nightmare or she was a pain in the ass. And I think, really? I like them really actually. So, but yeah, but from my, from my point of view, I, I haven't, I haven't encountered that. And I, and I want that record to, to continue. <laughs> 
<laughs> don't, don't we all? I just don't have time for it. I don't have the energy for it. Really no, don't. and you know, from the other side of it, neither do we as working with, you know, directors who think it's all about them and it's not about the piece. You know, again, it goes back yeah. to collaboration. It's exactly. Let's go back exactly. to the, the beginning and... Where did it all begin? Mm. It began with what's in front of us or what we're holding in our hands, and that's the script. Completely. Absolutely. So Mm. from Death of England, did you feel you wanted to – obviously you did because you did it, but when did it come about that you thought, yeah, we need to – we need to go to Delroy now? It's funny. It's funny um, because Clint and I, I think it it was in the National Theatre Bar, we were just talking about – all the other stuff that we didn't use, all the other unfilmed, the film stuff we filmed, there was so much there because we thought there's enough of two, two or three plays actually. Yeah. Um, and um, I mean, a bit of a scoopy in terms of what the, the next play is going to be about. There's a, there were some lovely scenes we filmed between Delroy's cat, the cat, the actor playing Delroy and the actor and the actor playing Carly. There's some really nice, intimate, really lovely moments between them, which we didn't end up using. I mean, there's, there's a bit of that in, in, in the first play and a little bit more in the second one, but there's still acres more. And, so, and then we just, we just randomly spoke about, oh, you know, we could, we, could, we, we could do another play. And then somehow in the conversation, it became, we decided it was going to be about Delroy. And then I think Emily, else, uh, who worked at the National at the time, overheard our conversation. And then we went downstairs because we were doing like a pre-show talk. And then uh, she outed us. She just sort of said, "Is um, oh, and... Um, we want you to write another play for us because um, I think you've got ideas. And we just went, oh, oh, all right, then we will. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> and um, I mean, it, it, it was kind of, I think, I think it was, it, it, it was edging that way anyway. Yeah. So, but but it was nice to sort of having confirmed in 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 front of many many witnesses. <laughs> and having not seen Death of England with Race, I did catch. Um, oh. On 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 the television, yeah. but it was, and I was so proud of Michael. Oh. But it was a, it was such a blistering performance from him. Again, and, again. You know, I, I, he must have. And for those that don't know, who, and I'm sure you did hear from. If did, I don't know if me and Giles spoke about it on last week's episode. Anyway, Giles Torreira was originally cast to play Delroy, mm. and um, sadly had to drop out to to have the operation. And then Michael Balligan, who. I interviewed in the first year of, of this podcast um, okay. on his first or second job at Arada, um, uh, which anybody hasn't listened, you should definitely go back and listen to that. It's a very good episode. But to see him step up and own, take control of of this role, you just went, well, who's plays Delroy? Michael Balligan is, is playing he was- Delroy. I, again, it was the same thing I had when Rafe. I watched Michael, and and particularly because he has such less time to to step in. Yeah. And but he did he did an incredible job, and um, um, it was curtailed sadly by COVID. Because um, yeah, our opening night was our last night. Well, that's not strictly true. We did have two weeks of previews, mm. and um, and he 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 was getting a standing ovation on every performance, and well deserved yes absolutely really well deserved um but yeah i mean it's um if they just go back and um it wasn't our intention to have the play on that year i mean that that took me by surprise wow i've got i've had two plays on the national in one year yeah that's just almost unheard of um but yeah it was because of the restrictions we all had we, we were going through and and then also, and then when the george floyd thing happened i think that really motivated clint and i to, to really 
we, we, we really speeded ourselves up because we just felt this is important in, you know, in terms of you know, what the world and what everyone's talking about. Absolutely, yeah. That goes back and, to what um, I was talking about, time as well, right? Mm. The time is now, yeah. And then Rufus had a word with us and said, look, you know, nothing, nothing guaranteed, but there's a chance we can reopen in October and, um, and we want to reopen this. And, you know, I was you know, amazed and um, speechless. And then I think I nearly passed out. Then when he said, uh, oh, it's going to be on, on the Olivier. And I went, come on, come on. <laughs> Seriously? Oh my god! Because it's um, oh, it's still a special s- space for me. I mean, it, I think it means that to lots of everybody. But yeah, have your play open there. Jesus Christ! Um, but it's also a I huge mem- space. <clears throat> yeah, I remember doing a tech. Um, I yeah, and I and I love techs. Yeah, um, so I know some some playwrights don't you know because you know you're 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 not needed. But I love it. I just love seeing all these people working. To, to deliver what you've written, mm. and I loved it. And I love I love nothing better than sitting back and watching them at work. It's great. So when we were taking Devon Delroy, I f- I sat right at the back of the Olivier's um, the dress circle, and I remembered. I said to myself, you know what? <clears throat> this could very well be the same seat I sat in when I was seventeen, when I came here first time. I came. I stepped foot in the National Theatre. I came to see Thripney Opera with um, Tim Curry playing uh, Matt the Knife. Wow. And it was um, it was a party of us because I was studying A level drama at the time, and Fritney Opera was one of the places we were studying. So we all got free tickets to come and see it. So we all sat at the back row, <clears throat> and I and I said, "Wow!" I mean, obviously, there's no way I could know for certain if that was the same seat, but I me- I do kind of remember where I, where I was, and I and that was a really weird, eerie feeling. I just thought, "Wow, well, Roy, you've come a long way, haven't you?" But also, that I find that really <clears throat> romantic. That's yeah. beautiful, you know. Mm. It's really nice. It's really nice. that made my that, yeah that made my that, that my day. That I thought of that. Mm. It's those lovely moments you can just oh. sit back and also you're in the tech. You're you know oh. at, for, for, right now your work is done. You can just sit back and watch everybody else put, start putting the jigsaw together and oh, you've got great. that feeling. It's... And that's so oh, love lovely it. to keep love your feet it. on the floor to go fucking hell, Roy. Yeah, I've come a long way here. This is this is <laughs> it's come full circle. It's beautiful. Oh, thank you, thank you. Yeah, and I, and yeah, and I hope yeah, you sort of younger playwrights. So you know, I hope they have ex, ex, an experience similar to that because it's all good. It really is. Do you think yeah. there's a time when part one and part two, as I'm calling them, even though they're not of Death of England, <clears throat> could could work together? Could play in, and I'm I'm not a theatre director or not. Could they come and play in <coughs> rap? Because I thought what'd be really interesting was to see both of them on the same day. I think there was a there was a again, we were restricted by a pandemic. There sure. was there was there was a strong conversations we were having about that happening. Mm. Um but obviously the world as it is um prevented it. So it's um yeah I mean as as much of the success I've had over the last year, I've had a few knockbacks, you know, like everybody else. Um Two revivals of two of my plays were curtailed because of the COVID. Um, Sucker Punch was going to be done again, and Sing Your Heart Out for the Lads. Even though that production of Sing Your Heart Out was done the year before at Chichester and and was done phenomenally. Yeah, I mean, I I went to see it. I very little to do with that. I just showed up, and I forgot I'd written it. It was just so good. It was so amazing. Wow. Nicole Charles, who directed it. So I just thought, you star, you absolute genius. Um, but yeah, there has been discussions about, about doing it in, 
in rep. But I'm, I'm hoping those discussions haven't gone away. I know Clint's, Clint's busy do, getting Marley ready, and we just done and we just filmed, um, um, a, um, especially written film that brings the two characters from the two different plays so far together. So it's not quite a play. It's um, it's kind of like a film. It's um, I wouldn't say it's it's definitely three. It's more like definitely two and a half. Right. Because then um, once Clint's come up for air, we're going to sit down and we're going to talk about the next, the final play, the final chapter. Fab. Well, I absolutely can't wait, and I'll be there. Well, now theatres are back and reopen. I'm setting foot in them. Uh, Roy, what an absolute fucking pleasure talking to you. Um, I feel oh, we've my got. A, I think we've got a lot more to cover. Um, so I think maybe we should. Uh, we should come back on and revisit this in a few oh, months. Oh, love to. Yeah. yeah, do me in. Absolutely. Um, and, well, let's meet uh, up soon. Let's, and, uh, uh, let's meet up in the real world. <clears throat> yeah. Who's your team, by the way? Just that you, I like to ask people, your footy team. Do you have one or do you follow? I'm from Blackpool, Roy. Oh. I don't oh. I don't follow football, my friend. <laughs> but um, you did mention a, a glass of wine before when we meet up, so I, I, we'll have a glass of red wine. Oh, we'll and, do and that. We'll, talk we'll about do that. My uh, love of uh, everything sport. It'll last two oh, minutes. Cool. We'll talk about something else after that. Roy <laughs> Williams, you've been an absolute star. Thank you very much, my friend. Cheers. Take care. Thank you. Bye. another episode is done what did i tell you he's such a ray of sunshine roy and he's honest his honesty about failure and rejection um is really important to hear whether you're an aspiring writer or not or whatever um career path you follow we all um meet a fork in the road with rejection and sometimes it's hard to deal with, you know? So thank you to Roy for being so candid and an absolute joy to listen to. And, you know, that was, I don't know if we mentioned it, that was the first time we've met. We were trying to work out if we'd met before through other people. I think our paths have crossed, but that was the first time that we we sat down for a, for a good hour or so and uh, chatted. And I think I said after we stopped recording, it's it's still... You know, it warms my heart where, you know, because I'm slightly nervous. I've never met anybody, bef- these people before. It's, is the conversation going to flow? Are we going to get on? Um, and it did. And I love it when it does. And it makes me really happy. And I hope it made you happy too. Um, yeah. And when, you know, when you feel comfortable, get back to the theatre, support your local theatres. And if you see a play, that is penned by Roy Williams, I suggest you go and see it. Or maybe go to your local bookshop and pick up one of his plays and give it a read. He's a phenomenal writer, and as you can hear, a fantastic, fantastic person. As I'm really thrilled that Roy came on, massive thank you to him, and a massive thank you to you for supporting us, as you do, week in, week out. Um, You know we're on Patreon. If you can support us there, Chuck us a few quid. These podcasts are free. Um, we put a lot of time and effort into them, whether it's, you know, I, I spend a lot of time trying to book the guests, sort the dates out, Griff's hard with the tech stuff, you know, so whatever you can do, maybe you can afford it this month, maybe you can't. Um, either way, thank you so much. Um, you say lovely things on social media that's great you remember word of mouth is key so do us a favor will you go and tell a handful 
of friends about this podcast and see if you can get them to subscribe. Uh, leave us a five-star review. I know, I know, I know. Yeah, leave us a five-star review. That helps. If you want to say something decent, that's great too. Social media is fantastic for getting word out. Or maybe you want to go old school and you want to send us a lovely email. We love reading them. We don't read them out. It's not Steve Wright on Radio 2. We're not going to flog about, oh, you know, your podcast is so great. Yeah. It's fine. We know that you love it and we're grateful and we're thankful for that. But you can, you can if you want, drop us an email. It's twoshotpod at gmail.com. See? I wasn't doing that slow. I remember it all the time. It's, you know, you don't know your own email. Um, that's it, I think. Anything else? No? Okay. I'll tell you what. Why don't we all... Meet back here next Thursday. Can I tell you who it is yet? No, I don't think I can. He's a director and I'm looking forward to it. I haven't recorded it yet, which is why I'm not telling you. But I'll see you here next Thursday. Until then, I've been Craig Parkinson. He's been producer Griff. And this has been the Two Shot Podcast. Thanks a lot. Take care of yourself. I'll see you next Thursday. Two Shot Podcast is presented by me, Craig Parkinson, recorded and produced by Thomas Griffin for Splicing Block. Our music, our brilliant music, is courtesy of Then Thickens. Cheers. Two Shot.